thank you. It's uh, great to see everybody, and we're super excited to share this information with you. Um, a couple of different things. There's this handout. I don't know if we handed those out. We can hand those out. So no, we didn't. We'll work on that. Better do that now at the end. Yeah. Um, but um, one of the things, Jeff, I just want to make sure that we convey to you is we're not experts at this. We're not like we don't have any degrees. We didn't, we haven't gone to any formal studies or kind of stuff. We just got excited about it because um, well, I'll tell a little bit about why I was excited about it. But uh, and then I think Jeff, you kind of picked up um, you know getting to know me and that kind of stuff, and you saw how wacky I was about learning this stuff, and you decided to do it too. But um, I have wacky. Yeah, I have a, an engineering background uh, as a, I have an aerospace mechanical engineering degree. Um, so I, I think detail, right? I, I, I think in uh, terms of, of, of logic and details, and I want, I want proof of something, right? So, um, exactly. <laughs> um, and so what happened was, uh, I used to be going to a different church that was very rote, very scripted, very, uh, you know, stand up, sit down, kneel, and it was very detailed, and, and I never questioned anything, right? You just you grab your little little guide, the, the uh, you know, pastor, the priest led the prayers and, and did the things, and I never questioned anything about the Bible, never questioned anything that they taught me, which I guess wasn't a bad thing, but it necessarily wasn't a good thing either. Um, it's just what we did. Um, well, many, many, many years later, when probably was in my uh, early 30s, I met a pastor from Alabama. And that pastor uh, started teaching me to read the Bible. Right, that's a weird concept when you're Christian, right? Read the Bible. Um, so, and I was like, well, you know, I don't have to because the priest reads it to me every week, right? So I don't really have to do that. Uh, but so I, I started. He challenged me to start doing it. And then he started pointing out things in the Bible that I had no idea were even in there, right? Or that it, that I had a completely uh, different understanding of things that were in there. Um, like he actually, he actually pointed. He said, how many? Uh, Tony Wiseman were at the nativity with Jesus. He was like, well, free, right? And uh, he says, well, actually, if you read uh, the account of it, they showed up several years later, right? And uh, I was like, oh, wow. I mean, well, why do we put them out at Christmas then? <laughs> so, right? It's just what we do. But so I was, and I was like, oh, my goodness, there's all this stuff that I didn't even know was, was part of the Bible or in the Bible or, was, was, or it was something I thought I knew that wasn't what, really what I knew. Um, and so I started reading it. And when I started reading it and going to a Bible teaching church, all of a sudden, my engineer kicked in, and I was like, well, if I'm going to believe this stuff, i got to know why I really believe it. And so then I'm all of a sudden starting to question all these things, and, and I never questioned my faith, but I started questioning, how do I believe that this is really true? Right? And that's why I got super excited, because it's really, really fun when you start to learn some different things, actually. And that's why I love coming to this church. Brent, every week, has always something that it's like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Uh, the way he taught that, or the way he explained that, or what that really means, and that kind of stuff. So that's why we're super excited about teaching this as we kind of go through this. So, um, do you want me to do the, the loop thing first? Yeah, I feel like I'm rambling on you and get to say anything. Um, so this is kind of how it works. I uh, do most of the talking and just the, uh, the good-looking guy. Um, so uh, I have a, a verse. Marina, you can go and throw the first thing up there. So uh, it's uh, Luke uh, chapter 24, verse 27 and verse 32, right? And you can look this up if you want to, but I, I have them here. I can read them. This is from the Emmaus Road, right? So you guys probably know the story. Uh, Jesus is risen from the dead, and he meets a couple of disciples, and they're walking towards Emmaus. And they start talking about, uh, you know, he's like, hey, why are you guys so bummed out? He's like, well, haven't you, are you the only one in, in, in all the area that hasn't heard what has happened? And because uh, they don't recognize Jesus, right? And the, the, the cool part about the, that passage is that um, Jesus was actually the only one who really did know what happened, right? So it's kind of ironic. But here's what the verse says. So in verse 27, 
It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what is said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So I've heard other people teach on this before. They, they talk about that. This is the greatest apologetics lesson in the history of mankind, right? Jesus is walking with these disciples, and he starts opening the scriptures to them. He starts opening the scriptures to their eyes, right? And they're, they're, he's teaching them all this stuff. And then later, if you remember, Jesus breaks bread, and then he disappears, and they're like, oh my goodness, this was Jesus. You know, their eyes were opened. And in verse 32, they said, then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while Jesus talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And the reason I love these two verses is, number one, Jesus is, is basically giving him them an apologetics lesson, but he's touching their heart, right? And apologetics isn't always about logic and facts and I'm right and you're wrong and this is how we defend the Bible. But you have to do it, and this is something we've learned over the years, is when you're talking to people about this stuff, you have to touch the heart, right? And it's not even us touching the heart, really. It's the Holy Spirit working through our words and, and, and doing that. So, Jeff, I don't know if you got some feedback off of that. But... No, let's just go on to the next point. All right. So, what is apologetics? Uh, we thought we'd take just a couple minutes and discuss just a little bit about what apologetics is before we even get into some of the biblical accuracy items. And so... One of the main verses that we always come back to when we start looking at apologetics is 1 Peter 3.15. And then we're going to also include 60 just because it makes a really cool point. Um, and, and that verse says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this in gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you your good behavior in Christ may not be ashamed, or may be ashamed of their slander. Let me share a story about how not to do apologetics. I was at work a couple of years ago um, in my office building. I know that's uh, like a fairly it's an old concept. Everyone a lot of time works from home now, right? But we were in the office, and uh, one of my coworkers just casually threw out the question, just for conversation, was, "What are you doing you know, this weekend?" Or, or this, I think it was actually a Thursday. What are you doing this Thursday that you're going to be out of the office? Well, at the time, Terry and I actually taught an apologetics class to middle schoolers and high schoolers. So I just said, well, I'm teaching an apologetic class. And she goes, well, what's apologetics? I didn't give her the, basically the definition that we're, that we're you know, going to talk about here in a second. But she also then went into right after that was, well, because the topic we were talking on that particular day was resurrection and crucifixion and how that is correct and biblical and it's all coherent. And so, so her next question then was logically, because she was a Hindu of Hindu faith, and we've had that a little bit of that conversation kind of before in our you know prior conversations, and I wasn't prepared for the question. Right? And so she kind of kind of goes, Well, how do you know for sure that Jesus was who he says he was? Or some version of that question. Well, the problem was I wasn't really prepared for it. So a couple of things happened is I gave I gave, it, I gave her an answer, and the problem was I gave her an answer <laughs> um, in there. And it really wasn't what here, and she just kind of looked at it and were talking with me a little bit. And I, we had a couple of the coworkers also pop up at the same time that decided to listen in at that exact moment, of course. And uh, it, just, it just didn't smooth. It didn't, it didn't go well. She ended up just kind of dismissing it, which happens. But I did a couple of things in there looking back on it that this goes completely against this first Peter verse. It says in there towards the end of verse uh, uh, 15, 
Um, but do this with gentleness and respect. We're willing to give that hope, right? When I was looking at her at that moment, I was giving that answer. All I saw was a nail. It just needed an answer. She just said, it just, we needed to get the right thing so I could be right in that moment. It wasn't necessarily about her or her heart in that moment. I just wanted to hit that nail on the head. That tends to be my personality. There's answers for a lot of the stuff as we look at apologetics. And so it's really easy to fall into the trap of, I just need to give the right answer. But if that's ultimately our goal, it's all for nothing. We need to be able to, when we're teaching on, on these things, is to really be able to look at the heart behind it. This lady that I was talking to, if I could have stopped from over and realized that it was her heart that I was really trying to get at. So maybe I should have asked a little bit of a different question. Rather than just coming down with my hammer with my answer, maybe I should have given a little bit of thought to a different question than I could have asked her. That maybe could have opened up so I better understood where she was coming from, and that I could address the real question that she had versus just the one that she gave me. So as we start looking at apologetics, keeping in mind that our heart on this is really important, and that we really need to look at the other person's heart um, there's uh, an apologist that's famous uh, for saying, there's always a questioner behind the question. So as we kind of go through the rest of this, and we're going to go through some details and some things that we can do to give answers, but also keeping in the back of our minds that we're really trying to open up the heart of the individual so Christ can work in there. So that's kind of the foundation. And we talk about the apologetics in there. But the, kind of the second thing to point out is uh, in there within verse 16 is challenges will come. They always do. Even in my little example, I wasn't really prepared for that question in that moment, and it didn't go really well, and it was just kind of dismissed off as nothing more than a quick conversation. Right, we're going to run into those times when um, it's not, we're not always seen in a great light, and we need just to be prepared for that as we're speaking out in truth and apologetics. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I ask a question? Yeah. Um, would it be, would telling one story of the transition in one's life work in that situation? When you, you know, it says logic and faith, but no one can take issue with the transformation you've experienced, but I, I, I don't know about the Hindu, though. <laughs> well, so you're, talk, you're talking about giving your testimony, right? No, not a testimony, abbreviate, just, you know, highlight, but yes, because anybody that's transitioned from being in the world to being for Christ has had an encounter, usually, or some sort of transformation, some life-changing events sometimes, but in that situation, um, you know, truth. Just tell the truth of yourself. I, I'm just curious what you think. Uh, yeah, I don't think you can help it. Right? <laughs> Thank you. So, um, if you really had that transformation in your life, I don't think you can help but tell other people about it, right? Whether it's whether it's through a direct quote or, through, or a verse or through, right. or just the way you act around them, that kind of stuff. People are going to see it, right? So. So it's not that you don't have an answer. It's just she caught you off guard. So when we even talk about apologetics sometimes, we need to differentiate between our personal story of faith and head knowledge. Because there's a lot of people when we start talking about apologetics, they can't get to that heart conversion story, our personal story testimony, the stuff that we feel so deeply about, because they can't physically comprehend any of the logic behind it. 
So there are times in apologetics, and we'll maybe even get into this in, in a little bit, is you have to sometimes break down that head knowledge a little bit, that you have to break down so they can understand it, so they can see that there is coherence behind what is being being talked about. And that a lot of, a lot of times when you can do that, you can allow them to understand that maybe there, maybe there is some truth behind this. It allows them then to open their heart for the testimony of the conversion of our own taste of So I just want to make sure we call that out too, because sometimes when we start talking about apologetics, it's important for us, but we also have to address the world teaches all kinds of crazy things. And so people have this one idea that they have that, that needs to be broken down first before they go, will be willing to broken down. And that's a wonderful question. Yeah, man, Rita, if you want to pull up the next three little points, it actually ties right into that, right? So um, for, uh, one of the points I put up there was, uh, how do we know anything is true when we talk about apologetics, right? The foundation of apologetics. How do we know anything is true? How many of you guys have gotten an email or a, a picture or something online recently and you're like, oh my gosh, you can't believe that, right? So um, there's, there's so much deception out there. So when people say, how do we know the Bible's true? Um, a lot of times they're 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 just specifically pointing out it's like oh well only Christians need to defend what they believe is true it's like well that pretty much is the general concept across the board right especially nowadays right so that's part of the process and then I put head heart and hunger on there because that's what Jeff's is talking about is when you do have that relationship with someone you need to, to discern between how do I touch the head like the, the the mind how do you touch the, the heart of somebody and more importantly is is how are you in the word uh, to, so you have the hunger to learn it, right? So that so that it comes out, right? So that it comes out the right way. So that's that's what that's all about. And that's uh, it's like you knew what we were talking about. So um, mm -hmm. they, they led right into that. So um, not conforming to this world. That's Jeff had kind of gone through that a little bit um, because you can't be like uh, just you got to be in the world, not of the world, right? That's that the whole concept. There, you got to be willing to. To, uh, to have those conversations, right? And there's sometimes like, they're, they're really easy to shy away from, so um, it's good to have the right attitude in that. Um, and then the, the whole, uh, do you really believe what you really believe is real? Right? It's just kind of a fun statement to say. But, um, and that's actually something that, if anybody's uh, ever watched The Truth Project with Dale Taggart, um, he talks a lot about that. And it's all about, um, like just like my story, it's like, do you really believe that it's really real? Because have you done the study in the Word? Have you have you learned the, this, this, these different things? Have you delved into the questions that um, that start to come up here and go, oh yeah, how does that work? Right. So that's how you, how you really start to believe it, and that builds your faith. Faith comes from hearing. You're in the Word, right? So when you learn that stuff and you get that head knowledge, uh, faith isn't just believing in something that you can't prove, right? It's actually starting to believe in stuff that you have studied and becomes real and. Um, and, and, and starts to become part of who you are, right? So that's that's what those points. Dale Tackett actually in the video asked a question right along the lines of, if you had to cure for cancer, would you keep it quiet? No. Or if you had no fail investment that you know could change someone's life, would you keep it quiet? No, you wouldn't. And, and how much more important that is with our with our faith. Am I the next point? <laughs> okay, on the next point. Uh, well, it's up there. What do you know? Why about before we go through this, uh, we're, we, this slide will take five minutes, and we're on 15 minutes. So we're going to go through some of this uh, a, a little bit quicker. Um, so one of the reasons we start talking about uh, apologetics and why it's important, the first main reason is for ourselves. It's not to have an answer necessarily to give someone else. It's for our own belief and what... So we know that our relationship is real, that we know that what God is teaching us is very real. So when we can internalize that, it allows it allows us 
to be able to do all of the rest of that of the world of apologetics out there because we know it and understand it. We really believe what we really believe, and we can and we can back it up. But so it just gives us that more more confidence uh, behind it. But let's go ahead and move out into logical fallacies. So quick thing on logical fallacies. I know this, this term logical fallacy is thrown around all over the place, and I'll be honest, when I first saw this, I couldn't even tell you what a logical fallacy was. So a couple of examples. An ad hominem. Anyone heard of an ad hominem? Yeah. Yes. Yeah? Ad hominem is when someone attacks you personally rather than your position on something. So if we're talking to, to, on defending the Bible, Sorry, the thing's going off my ear here. Like Jeff's from Wisconsin, he doesn't really know anything. Yeah. <laughs> or the other one he gives is because I'm a Packer fan, therefore I'm a terrible person. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, a, it's attacking me as a person rather than attacking yeah. the problem. That's an ad hominem. It's quite common when you're talking about defending the Bible, they'll, they'll turn their attack to the Christian versus the Bible or God or the point that you're trying to make. Red herring, and that one's a pretty common one. So when you're trying to make a, a point on something that's completely different than the topic of what you're talking about. <coughs> A pretty, uh, pretty common one to talk about. Uh, the other one that we should talk about quite often, we'll probably get into the shifting the burden of proof. We'll get that into the next couple of sessions a lot more. Um, and that's it's in the name, shifting the burden of proof. Rather than they make they make some sort of claim. Now you have to back up their claim or counter it, rather than them having to back it up. It's really, really common. Um, it happens in schools all the time or all over the place where someone will throw out a comment and all of a sudden they reverse it on you and you're now having to defend what you believe versus them just making their truth claim that they just made. So it comes a couple, couple things with logical fallacy. So those are ones, like three in particular, that as we continue um, down over the next three weeks, that those are pretty important when there's a little bit of Christian faith, but they're all over the place. So being able to see those and call those out really helps just as you're talking with people out there in public. Yeah, and so we put up one of the ones that the people use for biblical accuracy is uh, is rumors hearsay popular opinion. They'll just throw up these these things that people have heard all the time, right? So we have a couple of uh, of uh, examples of that. So what I wanted to do, or what Jeff and I wanted to do, was uh, kind of do a, a little bit of an interactive thing here. So we're going to throw up um, like a an, uh, something that people kind of throw up about biblical accuracy, right? And I want do you guys, if you guys got an answer for it, how would you? If someone asked you that, what would you say, right? So throw the, we're going to throw that first one up there, right? So, uh, what's that say? The Bible is not true because it is an old book. We don't really know when it was written. What if somebody said that to you? What was that? Does somebody have like an answer they would have for that? I bet we, we, we can we can stand here all day. Let's hands over here. Oh, oh. But genealogies in the Bible kind of go through some of the prophets and the, the timely is. Mm -hmm. My mind is right there. Yep. Yep, that's good. That's good. That one. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in the present, I think Greg has spoken about this a few times, our, our chronologicals and operate that we think that because something is new, it's automatically the best, um, which just isn't the case necessarily. Right. Yeah. In my notes, I put, so what? So what? <laughs> Question back then. Um, 
Those are, those are the Bible conflict. Aren't there conflicting stories in the Bible, like the difference between Matthew and Luke and John and the Gospels? Oh, stop. What did, oh, wait, wait, wait. What did I just do? I shifted the burden of proof. Yeah. <laughs> in that moment. So I, I apologize. I usually was a little bit of a guinea pig. I apologize. But that is a real example of what happens quite frequently is there will be a truth claim that's stated and then it had just like that's called shifting the burden of proof. Um, many of the old prophets are tied to historical kingdom and we know when that happened through the history so you can kind of know exactly the time those prophets wrote. That's awesome. We're actually going to get into a little bit of that as we get farther down um, into, the, into the slides here. That, that's actually a question. Let's go to the next one. Uh, we don't really know who wrote it, right? So if you came back and said, well, there's a whole bunch of different people that wrote the different books in the Bible, and said, well, we don't really know who wrote it. They were the apostles and God-inspired writers. How do you know that? <laughs> well, because I believe what I've read. So... And, and, yeah. and this, is, this is awesome. This is awesome. Is they, they were martyrs. They sacrificed their lives. And you don't do that for somebody who's teaching heresy. I mean, you don't go get yourself stoned or crucified or have your head cut off because you are professing the truth. Yeah. Those are all wonderful things. So let's talk just a second about... How can we do apologetics out there in the world? So if someone were to come up to you with one of these questions, what are some things that we can do to make our lives as an apologist maybe a little bit easier, or maybe give us a little bit more time behind it? So there's a couple of questions that you can ask. And so this whole theme here is questions, 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 questions. We won't put it up here. But when we start talking about apologetics, the more information that we can get out of a person about a statement like this that they're asking, the better that we can answer their question. So one question that you can always ask, when someone comes up to you and they say, we don't really know who wrote it or the Bible isn't true, the next logical question that I, as an apologist, can ask is, well, what do you mean by that? Because we don't really know what they mean by that. Or we don't really know what they're driving at. They probably have one or two points that they have been told at some point throughout their life that they, that they know. Right? And I want to get to those one or two points so we can address those one or two points versus just leave this open and me trying to spew information all over them like I did with my lady at work. <laughs> right? We don't want to do that. And then after they give an answer um, uh, to it, then you can follow up with how'd you come to that conclusion? How'd you come to that conclusion? Two simple questions you can ask as you're, as you're out there engaging with people on these topics. Yeah, but it's really good. It, it shows a couple of things. One, like Jeff mentioned, it's it's kind of shifting the burden of proof, but not in a, in a confrontational way. It's giving them a chance to explain themselves, right? So it's really opening up the conversation, and it's creating a relationship. You're willing to listen to that person rather than just being defensive, right? So that's that's it's a fantastic way to do it. And our natural human nature is when someone kind of pushes, you want to push back. But if someone pushes you and then you push back, what do they do? They want to push back. <laughs> and generally harder. And it usually gets harder as yeah. escalates, right? So I was at a baseball tournament all day yesterday, and there was a few times when people had to hit somebody with a pitch because somebody hit them with a pitch, right? So <laughs> retaliation mentality, right? So, but um, in, in apologetics, if you can instead of think of, if you're, not, if you're not pushing, you're really just coming alongside the person to get their perspective, right? And so you're, you're asking them to open that up. So so there's a few other questions we threw up that we threw up there. Um, we're going to go ahead and just put those up there. Yeah, so. just throw them all up. 
you know, stories are exaggerated for effect, right? So people talk about that, though there's enough time that they put the miracles and the deity in there just to kind of fit the narrative, right? Um, passed on by word of mouth. This is kind of an interesting one. People, the, the, a lot of times they'll say, um, you know, the Bible's just passed on by word of mouth. And imagine if I just whispered something in Sarah's ear and then she whispered it into Brent's ear and then we passed it around the room. By the time, you know, the thing that I said over here, it would be completely different over here. And people are like, oh, that's a good point. But I um, mean, I think the Bible is actually written that way. <laughs> it's kind of silly when you think about it, really. If you think, okay, I, I, read, I have a copy of the Bible, so I'm going to whisper it in somebody's ear and let them. I'm not, I don't get to ask any questions about what they said, but it's just going to get passed on you know, by secret whisper, right? It wasn't, it was, this was, it was scrupulously copied and, and checked and double checked and triple checked and all that kind of stuff, so. Um, but this is something that people use um, and it's wildly inaccurate. It does not have uh, the words don't panic written on it, right? So, does anybody like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? I didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so excellent. Terry, wait, that one. Terry, I remember talking about that, Jeff. And, 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 and fairness, Terry had explained this to me when I saw the point too, so I had no idea what. Like, wait a minute, another movie that doesn't really count. Uh, <laughs> but actually, um, the, the wildly inaccurate stuff in there is is, is something too that you can get a count because people will come up with things like the Genesis one account of creation is totally different than the Genesis two account of creation. Has anybody ever heard that? Have you ever heard that before? And, it's, and when you read it, it's, oh, well, God created the animals and then he created people. And in this one, he says, God created people and then the animals. And, and there's a bunch of different, and when you actually study it, you find out that the Genesis one is a historical account. Genesis two is a narrative. He's God telling the story again of Genesis one, right? So, but people just throw that out there. And if you haven't studied the stuff, and this is why it's good to, to go through things that you can learn from and, and grow from. That, so that you kind of understand those things, right? Because otherwise, I remember the first time I heard that was my brother actually did talk to me about that, and I was like, ah, well, I don't, I, I never heard that before, right? So, so, Carl, if I want to come up to you and ask you, isn't the Bible wildly accurate? What's your response? No, because it was written by God. It's all written by God. Let me ask you a question. Do you know what I mean yet? So when you see something like it's wildly inaccurate, right? This I just want to cause that pause. I'm picking on you a little bit. No, no, but uh, it's really, it's really a good point. It's really a good point to make here. Is if someone comes up and says something that's wildly inaccurate, my next logical question is, what's inaccurate? Because <laughs> a lot of times, that's all they know. That's all they know. That's why I've been told it's wildly inaccurate. I can't give you an example, and that really dolls into a cool conversation. You talk about, have you ever heard of textual criticism? Right? You can now ask those questions um, um, off of it as well. So think questions, questions, questions as you're as we're dealing with this. Yeah. And Carl, Jeff does have a note in his slides that says pick on Carl. So I took it out last night. <laughs> okay, so now we understand logical fallacies um, and kind of how to address them with the why do you say that, right? Just getting more information. Um, let's go through a, a couple of uh, uh, different things about original copies. Yeah, so this slides. Uh, the original copies, go ahead and read them. Um, so, with this is uh, for, for reference, we put up there, uh, Jeff, I think this was yours. So. It is mine, I apologize. Mine is distracting me. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, in your uh, handout um, that you have, there is a couple of charts on here. And so, when we start looking at original copies, one of the big questions that always come up is when are they dated, right? Because the skeptic wants to put the written word of God as far away as possible from when it was actually written. Because now that they have a point to go, well, it was written so many years after, it can't really be accurate. Right? That's the comment that's stated a lot of times. But the 
the research just doesn't even come close to showing that. And so if you take a look at things like outside the Bible, like Plato and Homer's Iliad, there is a handful of copies, a couple hundred of them um, out there for each of them, maybe, maybe a little more than for Homer's Iliad. It's on your chart. I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head. But most of those are dated about you know, anywhere between 800 to 1600 years after they were originally written. Which, if you're talking from a, a secular standpoint, from an academic standpoint, is fabulous. That it's really close together, it's, there's no disputing it. It, it, it's really, really close. But then we get to the New Testament, so let's go ahead and go to our next point here. It's, now let's take a look at what the, actually the Bible uh, shows. And so someone should call a contradiction out on us right now, because we put 10,000 up here on our slides, and in your handout it says over 25,000. Right? Well, here's the reason for that. Um, how, what do you count? Right, because there's tons and tons, thousands and thousands of little two-word, three-word um, original scripting that they found some in a dump someplace, or as they're digging up these historical sites. And then there is whole books and whole copies of the New Testament. So just what, when you look at these numbers, these 10,000 or 25,000 plus numbers, just what are they all including in those numbers? Some of them include all of the little fragments where they only have two, three, four words or one sentence. And some of them are only if they have full books or full um, copies of the New Testament, those type of things. So just for Terry and I to be on the safe side, we put 10,000 plus, just depending on how you want to frame that. But even taking a look at that, there's 250 manuscripts of Plato. There's, I think, six to 700 of Homer's Iliad. 10,000 plus copies of the New Testament scripture. Dated somewhere between 30 to 100 years after. 30 to 100 years. And the amount of them is crazy. So we want to take a look at how does, does the New Testament, does the Bible actually hold up to the, the outside academic influence of, of when it was written? Absolutely, and it's hands down the best out of any book even on the planet when it comes to historical context, original copies, those types of things. It's absolutely insane, the researchers out there. But, is that book, you know, just an old book that's written a long time ago? <laughs> right, I mean, it's all kinds of that stuff that's done. No, well, actually go look at the evidence. It's just not always shown. Yeah, and we don't actually have a contradiction because we did 10,000 plus, and it was 25,000. No, fair enough, there's no contradiction. <laughs> but uh, the numbers are wildly, wildly different. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, and then uh, there's a thing called the Codex Sinaiticus, right, which I can't remember what it means, but you probably remember what it means. Come on. I'm, I'm not going to Oh, come on. <laughs> I actually looked it up, I was going to remember. It's some weird name they gave for the very first complete New Testament, the entire thing, right? And it's like 350 years, somewhere around that area, um, uh, dated 350 years AD, right? So it's the one of the closest complete documents um, that, that the church has. Brian could probably come up and do like a two-hour talk on the Codex Sinaiticus, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Sarah's like, no, four. We're like, four. <laughs> but it's a, to make just, to, to point, just point, it's, it's historically one of the most documented books that we have, right? It actually is the most documented book. And then, and then you, you, it's interesting because when you do look at that chart and you go, oh, uh, writings of Plato, Aristotle, Homer, all these different things, there's all these little bits and pieces, and no one questions that stuff. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene and it goes kaboom, and it just explodes with all this information. Um, and it's, it's, it's amazing. So. Um, and then the last point on this slide is, is uh, the canon. Canon is a uh, term that just means rule or uh, or uh, measuring stick. Uh, so, and it's the term that they use to, to talk about the, the 
conglomeration of hope center in the Bible, right? And so a lot of times people will talk about, oh, a bunch of old church people got together and they just picked what was going to be in the Bible, right? And the truth is, I actually had a long conversation with Brendan about this. The truth is that um, God picked what was going to be in the Bible, right? So God created the canon. And the Bible actually confirms that by saying all scripture is God-breathed, right? There's several places where it talks about that scripture is, is from God, right? And so if you're like me, you go, okay, so the Bible says that God created the scripture, and the way we back that up is by looking in the Bible. That's circular reasoning, right? So to me, that's that they, there gets to be a point where outside of delving into all this historical stuff, which I think is the foundation to, to believe that, hey, the Bible says it's true, so then I believe it because I can read it in the Bible because it says it's true. I can believe that because I can do all this historical analysis and the facts just can't deny that it is it is what it says it is, right? But at some point you have to kind of look inward at, at, at itself and say, God said this was written by, you know, he put this canon together, so he put it together. And in fact, all these different councils that you hear about that were formed and done, they didn't they didn't create the canon, but they confirmed it, right? They, they validated it, right? Not that God needed the validation, but they, they got together and they, talk, they talked about it, right? So, um, so that's, that's kind of that, that that canon is, right? So we know that the original copy was, it was, there wasn't even really an original, it just always was, right? It just always was. Okay, next slide. Textual criticism. You got the first point. Oh, okay. You got the notes on that side. Okay, so the first point is that there's 400,000 plus errors in the New Testament, right? That's something people point out. They always point out and say, did you know that there's more errors in the New Testament than there are actually words in the New Testament? Right? Um, and there's a couple things about this. One, it's uh, the reason that that is, is, I mean, if we only had like one copy of it, there wouldn't be that many errors in it, would there? Actually, there'd probably be none, right? Because, well, maybe I'm misspelling it too, that my wife would find. Um, but uh, but if we, the fact that we have so many different you know, little pieces that they found and different copies and so many, so many manuscripts, um, that speaks to that there would be different things in there. Right? There, there, there may be some misspellings that do some different things. Um, plus, uh, what are those? What are those errors, right? So back to Jeff's question, what do you mean by that? Right? Let's put up the next two points. So just to kind of piggyback off of that too, if we think about, we start talking about textual criticism, we start talking about copies of, of the New Testament or copies of the Bible, what do you think would happen if we only had one original? What would we do to it? We could change it. So even when you're taking a look at it, so one of the ways to preserve the original is to not have the original. If you have four, five, six, seven, eight, twelve, a hundred copies of the original, you are really protecting the original. Because you can verify against all of those copies that you have and see who changed it. Because you can trace back when this word was changed or this phrasing was changed. You can see exactly when that stuff happened. So one way that you can actually even protect the original is one of the complaints is always we don't have the originals, they're just copies. Well, no, that's a good thing because if we had the original, we could change the original. So when we have all of these copies, it makes it much more verifiable. But of all of the textual criticism, 75% of them are simple spelling errors. Missing a U or adding a U or an and versus an and. There's a lot of that type of stuff. It changes nothing about the scripture itself. It's just a, a simple uh, spelling error. And the next point is untranslatable words. 
There are a few, and actually I'll use the term untranslatable, I'll put it in quotes because it all gets translated. There's not words missing out of the Bible. Uh, it's just there's some words that are harder to translate than others. An example, if you're looking for one, is the word woman found in Luke 13, 12. And I'm going to probably butcher the Greek on this. Uh, guna? No, gune. Gune? Yeah, gune. Uh, is, is the word. It means woman um, is with the technical definition as you look at the Greek, but it's not... If, if you look at it from today's culture, that kind of sounds really negative, right? If you would go to someone and say, woman, you are free. This kind of can be taken a little context in today's culture, um, which is what Luke uh, 13, 12. But back um, at the time of Jesus, that, uh, that particular word that's used for woman was actually, it would, it would have been a positive thing. It would have been the standard greeting for a guy to say to a woman. That's how they would have addressed him. We take and we twist that. In, in our culture to mean something uh, a lot of times quite negative. So it's culturally, you can't, you can't take today's culture and try to make it what it was 2,000 years ago. You can't also take the culture 2,000 years ago and transfer today, right? You have to take a look at what the cultural context with, um, with all of this is. And so there's even a few translations in the Bible. Most of them um, say the word woman uh, for that particular uh, for that particular Greek word. There are a couple of, transla of translations, um, NLT being one of them, that actually says dear woman. So it makes it a little softer like the word was intended. So it's just something, that there's a few words like that that they're not untranslated, but they're really difficult from the Greek into, into the English. Cool, so the next two uh, on there are uh, what is called meaningful non-viable variants, which is kind of a big word, a uh, bunch of words, but all it means is it means something, it's non-viable so it doesn't stand up, and it's a variant, so it's definitely different, right? So, and the, what they're what they're meaning by this is that the original um, has some manuscripts that differ, but those ones that differ are so far away from, in time-wise, away from the original that they just discount them, right? And an example I found on this is like Luke six twenty-two. It says, "Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man." In the tenth and eleventh century, there's there's some manuscripts that have that last little part, because of the Son of Man. It's not in there, right? So it technically doesn't change the whole scripture, uh, you know, to to the point where it would be you know complete heresy. But it would be, uh, but it's the 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 older one without it or the newer one, I guess, without it, uh, is so far away from the original that it's just, they call it non-viable, right? So it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't, they, they just throw it out, it's, it, they don't count that. Um, and then the other uh, one they have is uh, meaningful viable variants, right? And this is less than 1% of all the errors that are in the New Testament, right? And this would be something that is close enough in time that it could be something different, uh, but it never, these never change the true meaning of the, of the scriptures, right? It never changes doctrine. Yeah, it never changes doctrine. Um, and uh, I have a couple examples. These First John uh, one four says, "And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete." And in some of the manuscripts that are close in time, the "our" has changed to "your," right? So, so it's our joy or your joy. So that's some of the errors in these uh, meaningful Bible variants that they bring up uh, that can be brought up, but that really doesn't change the. The doctrine there. First Thessalonians 2 7 has, but we are gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And in some of the translations or some of the uh, manuscripts, it says the word um, gentle is replaced by infant, right? So we would say, but we were infants among you, like nursing mother taking care of their own children, right? Again, it doesn't change the doctrine, but it's a, it's a variant in there. 
And uh, so I find it interesting that you know, out of all the you know more errors and there are words in the New Testament, one percent of them fall into this category, and none of those one percent change doctrine of the church. We don't know everything. So in apologetics, it's okay to go, you know what, that's a wonderful question. Let me get back to you on that. Versus having to just stumble, try to do it, try to give some answer off the top of your head that isn't right. It's okay to say, thanks for making me think on that. Let's let's try to call back up with you in a couple of weeks and then I'll get you a good answer. Jeff might think he doesn't know everything. I would put myself in the category. I don't know anything. So. <laughs> but I'm not sure what to say to that. All right, let's next slide. The next one. You want to throw all three points up for us? Yeah. Uh, so historical textual accuracy. Um, this is just a couple of different things that are interesting to know about history. Gospels are believed to be written in Rome, Antioch, Ephesus, and Jerusalem. Um, there's some discussion on that, but one of the things that I like to point out about that too is these are uh, hundreds of miles apart from each other, right? So they're, they weren't they weren't writing them all in the same room, right? And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered the uh, synoptic gospels. Um, and if they were all written, you know, far apart from each other, how did they get so harmonized with each other, right? So, um, so it's it's just an interesting thing to think about, right? So they all they, they kind of all collaborate each other, right? Um, one of the things, uh, names in the scriptures uh, are relevant even though they were written hundreds of miles apart when they do these studies, and I got the next slide will kind of go through a, a, a kind of little interesting exercise on that. Uh, but when these are written, you find these na the names of the people just like you would expect to find them in that time in history, right? Um, so it's, that's, uh, that's another thing that kind of historically backs it up. Um, and the names of ancient cities and locations and events that were thought to be myth are being discovered. I was actually talking to Brent, you guys have been to uh, Jericho, right? Yeah. So as we said, it was just a pretty cool, I mean, it's a pile of rubble, but it's, it's still cool, right? So, and uh, there's actually tons of different things. I wrote a bunch of things, I won't go through them down here, but there's tons of things that they discover historically and archeologically that back up things in the Bible. Things that, that uh, critics have forever claimed, it's like, well, this never really happened. Right? And then they find these things, right? And, and what's really what's really funny is they never find anything that contradicts the Bible. When they find things, it almost always is either neutral or affirms the biblical account. It's really kind of uncanny. Right. So uh, the last thing we're going to do here is we'll make, we're going to make this into a little guessing a guessing game. This last part, um, and uh, this is this is kind of a fun little thing. And the whole point of this is go ahead to clarify. We're not guessing. You're guessing. Yeah, you're guessing. Just to clarify. <laughs> Um, so, uh, uh, one of the points we really want to emphasize is that, like we mentioned, we are uh, learning and we are figuring things out and we are studying things and the whole point of this, these three classes is to hopefully whet an appetite a little bit so that you guys want to do some stuff too, right? So, this is just an example of one of these things. There actually, there's literally an, an inexhaustive supply of, of information and studies you can do about the accuracies uh, of the Bible. So, um, and that's what, that's what maybe... Maybe you're sitting there thinking it's, it's kind of nerdy to do that, but it, it's, it's a ton of fun to start to uh, learn this stuff and whatnot. So this is from Matthew chapter uh, 10, verse 2, and it's where they're just listing out the apostles that uh, Jesus had. Right? And so the way this is exactly the way they're listed in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, and it says, and what I would have on here is the name of the apostle, I'm going to look at my thing here, is, and then it's the rank, and so this is, uh, let me look at the, the reference here. If you're interested in looking this up, this one, the 2006 Lexicon of Jewish Names in Late Antiquity, Part 1. Uh, so, uh, 
if you really want to get geeky. Yeah. And actually, I, I did look that up, and it was actually done. That was a study done by it was it wasn't a biblical scholar. It was just some secular person that wanted to study the, the names in history and that kind of stuff. So, um, but this is the rank of popularity, right? You ever see the books and it's like, hey, these are the most popular baby names of, the, of all time, yeah. that, that kind of thing. So this is at that time, these are the rank in popularity. So, um, what do you guys think? The Simon, who is called Peter, right? What do you think the rank in that was? Maybe first. You think he was one? Yeah. One. Most popular name. Most popular name. Most popular name. Well, it was just in yeah, Jewish world, right? Jewish. Anybody else have a guess? Wait, I didn't hear the answer. What if he said number one? Simon is one. That's his guess. That's his guess. <laughs> That's what he's guessing. What name do you think is number one? And Jeff was supposed to have been candy bars, but we got these right, but he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it has nothing to do with Jesus. This is just, you know, you're sitting there arguing with your spouse. What should we name the boy? Right? And I promise there is a point to make the answer of all of this. Let's see the answer. Number one. Number one for Carl. All right, so um, we're going to do his brother, Andrew. So what's Andrew? Number Andrew. This is out of This is out of every name. Every name. Out of every name in that, at that, this time in history. It's 109. 109. What's the answer? Yes. <laughs> 15. All right, so now I'm going to give you a clue. If you if you look at the way the name is listed and the number that it's ranked, if you can f figure out a pattern, right? So now I'm going to take James, son of Zebedee, and you, we'll give you guys a, a range, right? So if you get it within a range, I'll, I'll, I'll say you're smart. Thirty. Thirty. Four. Four. Ten. Two. Ten. Five. Hundred. Hundred. Eighty. Fifty. What's the answer? Eleven. Eleven. Oh. So we got John, right? We think John was ranked. Two. 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 Go ahead. Five. Pretty close. I think I think that counts. Two. Philip. Ten. Philip. Ten. Go ahead. Sixty-one. So there's something different about Philip's name up there. I'll just give you a clue. So we got Bartholomew. Go ahead. Oh, two hundred. Go ahead. Fifteen. How about Thomas? You guys are thinking in today's terms of popular names. Yes. Yeah. So, go ahead. Hundred plus. No one cared about those two. Those uh, wasn't very popular. How about Matthew, the tax collector? Go ahead. Nine. James. Anyone see a pattern yet? Okay, go ahead, next one. Just follow them up there now. We're short, short time. Thaddeus, 39th. Simon the Zealot. One. One. Yep. <laughs> and Judas. Four. Judas. That's only just Judas. Right. It's just Judas. The scare was where he's from. Yeah, I scared. I was, I was wondering that too. He was wondering this is his last name. But it was, it was where he was from, so. So, what's the pattern? Yeah, well, does anybody know the pattern there? No. This is really interesting. And so it gives you some biblical accuracy um, uh, beliefs because what the pattern is, is the reason this was written this way is because if you were describing this, so you wanted people to know who these people were, you would, if, if you said Simon, 
how would you, if it's the number one ranked, there's probably Simons walking all over the place, right? Yeah. So how would you know who that is? Unless you said Simon, who is called Peter, uh, right? But when you get to Thomas, if you said, oh yeah, and Thomas, everybody like, well, I only know one Thomas, right? Because <laughs> no, there wasn't a very popular name, right? So in, in the, as it's written, every name that was popular um, has, a, has a descriptor on it, the way it's written in the Bible. Which I think was what I thought was fascinating when I was reading this article. Um, it was just so interesting that how would they have known to do that, right? And especially going back to the previous, you know, points that we were talking about, if, this, if, the, if the gospels are made up, would they do this? Because it makes perfect historical sense with what they were doing, right? It's just it's it's not something that is easy to you know to argue from from you know an atheistic standpoint. Mm -hmm. And, and you can do, like the last couple of points here, you can do this with all kinds of stuff, with geography, walking distances, botany, when they talk about the, uh, the sycamore tree that uh, Zacchaeus climbed, um, you know, different things like that, uh, economics, all kinds of stuff. So in the Bible, there's all kinds of stuff. So the point of this is that the, the writers had incredible attention to detail, right? So if you're trying to just make a vague book about some, some religious stuff that you want people to believe, you wouldn't put that much detail in it so you could be traced down and tracked and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. right? And they didn't have, last point here is they didn't have fact checkers back then, but God knew that someday there would be, right? So he put all that stuff in there. So which I think is really fun to, to learn. Um, and uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's one of the reasons I love coming to church here is because every week, uh, thanks to Brent's incredible studies um, and God's Holy Spirit, um, there's always something we can learn uh, that's pretty neat about, uh, about the Bible and apply to our lives. Go ahead and throw up the next slide. In your handout, there's these same resources. So if you want to dig more to this topic, we threw some of the good ones out there that we have found as a good place to start. Cold Christianity is an excellent book if you want to read about the Gospels and how the Gospels are coherent with one another. It's, it's amazing. It's, I think, I think, did you put these on the handout? Okay, I did the handout. I did the handout last night. Just take, if you take a picture. One of the morning. Feel free to take a picture uh, of it. Um, this is some videos and different websites. Um, Brent, you can put this on the email too, right? Yeah, Once I download the PowerPoint. Okay, are we good on the resources? Yeah. Okay, any more pictures before we take this down? Guys, uh, we will take some questions. I'm happy, we're happy to do that. We have a few minutes to do so. We're going to try to go to about five or six minutes of that and then be done so. I don't remember if it was here or if I was listening on a podcast one time. I think they were talking about like if people believe that crucifixion was true. They're like, you can go sit in a courtroom and you're going to have 15 different stories of people seeing what happened. But every single person that was at the crucifixion saw the exact same thing and the stories never changed. Mm -hmm. Where at court, you're going to have 25 witnesses and every is going to be a little the difference. Yeah. So that is the book Cold Case Christianity. The guy that writes it is by Jay Warner Wallace. He's the detective that does cold case homicides out of LA. And that's a, that's one of his main things. He goes through the four gospels and takes them apart from like an eyewitness standpoint to be able to find exactly what you're saying. So that's an excellent, excellent point. Awesome resource for that because it's it's there. Any other questions? Go ahead. I'm sorry, you had my thing. Yeah, I also have a book at home called The Handbook of Christian Apologetics. It's pretty big, but I have a book on that at home. 
Yeah, awesome. Yeah, there's tons of tons of books, um, tons of great resources, podcasts. I, I love podcasts and stuff. It's uh, there's actually a guy named uh, Mike, somebody called the Bible Thinker. I can't remember his name. Wagner. Wagner. Um, and uh, he does like 20 questions every Friday, and then uh, I just love him too. He's fantastic. So sorry, Brenda. I should have told you about him before I mentioned it. Everybody. Hopefully you trust me. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll talk about him in CRT as well because he does quite a bit. <laughs> he does quite a bit in that space. <laughs> Another good book is uh, Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Strobel. Yeah. Case for Christ is an excellent book as well. It's also a movie on that one if you want the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as good as the book. It's not as good as the book, but yeah. go ahead. I wasn't I'll get to you in just a second. Go ahead. Just a quick question. I can't think of religions, but they'll use the Bible, but then they have added books. The Apocrypha. Yeah. And people, if someone to ask you, well, you know, and I also think about like Catholic, they have some of their own teaching, and I, I don't know, I, I'm still feeling like I'm very new at learning scripture. Yeah. Yeah. You knew both. Yeah. Between raising kids, I finally feel like I'm starting to be able to take time to dig in. But so there's, there's, and Brian, you could probably talk more on this, but um, there's the Gnostic Gospels and the, the extraneous writings that are completely uh, non-scriptural, but there's also what they call the Apocrypha, which is uh, traditional teachings and writings, and then there's supporting documentation from people like uh, Josephus and different uh, scholars. Um, but each one has its own uh, you know, huge long thing that you'd want to discuss about it, but um, yeah. So probably the more the, probably the important point from there is that Mormonism and Islam, both as like major religious groups, are taking the New Testament we have and adding books to it that add new information, new interpretations, mm -hmm. and all kinds of new theology that is not consistent with the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things when you start reading those books, you'll say that changes the meaning of what we had seen in the rest of the Bible. And that's like a huge red flag, obviously. When you're reading the Book of Mormon, you go, that doesn't sound the same. Like, I get my own planet when I go to heaven. Yeah. And it's like, it's just like so wildly different that you look at it and you go, that, something has got to be wrong with that. And it's the same Islam to the Quran is is a, you know, Muhammad is a, a prophet that comes after Jesus and in some ways usurps Jesus' message and it goes to a degree that as a Christian you would go, that's not, that's not all right. Brenda, I believe a men get their own planet, women spend eternity having spirit babies. <laughs> that's Mormonism. It's, it's like crazy. Yeah. Sounds great, isn't it? Weird stuff. A friend of mine is Mormon and she said, as a Christian, it's, it's not that easy. You have to work for it, and so, right. yeah. As she said, we don't make it that easy. It can't, yeah. There's no way it can be that easy. Oh, and Brian, did you uh, write a, a book on? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Brian's got a whole book on Mormonism. Yeah. If you want, I got a copy here. So we <laughs> want to borrow it. One more question, and then we'll be done. Uh, you mentioned circular reasoning when talking about the canon, but yes. you never really resolved it. <laughs> well, that's, it's that's, unresolved. That's, that's, that's the definition of circular reasoning. Uh, <laughs> Terry, you want that one? Yeah, so um, this is a great question because uh, that's this is one of the things that I struggle with, right? Because I want an answer, some sort of foundational spot where we can all start and agree upon. 
And God just says, no, you <laughs> can't do that with this. Because um, if, and if we started with the foundation of Scripture is comes from God, and the Bible says it does, so therefore it does, if we start with that and go, that's circular reasoning, I can't accept that. The only, th the only recourse we have at that point is to go, okay, let me go and study the history. Let me go and study the archaeological history. Let me go and study the, the uh, manuscript history. Let me go and study and compare it to other histories. And then when you study all the stuff that we're talking about, you come to the conclusion that it has to be from God. Now, I can't, you can't make it go click in the place and be, you know, real satisfying and make it all sleep better at night, right? Uh, but you can't get to the point where, you, where it, it's like there's no other solution here, right? It just couldn't be magically put together, you know, by some accident, right? The, the, the odds are too astro astronomical, right? So I think that's kind of the, yeah. the point, and that's what we, we talked about too. Yeah, and if I can add mm -hmm. one thing, I would say if there's anything that you can say has internal arguments for its truthfulness, it would be when God is making the claim. You know, like if if God says, "I this is my word, then that's there's the only thing, and I, I guess I put it this way, is the only thing that you can have circular logic that actually makes sense is because it's coming from God. Everybody else, if it had internal logic that was circular, but it was coming from me, you couldn't trust it. Uh, God says his scripture is God breathed. Mm -hmm. I think we can just say case case closed. But if you get to a point of having to trust in his authority and trustworthiness to give us a word. I think from a Christian point of view especially, right? You have to take that, that little piece of faith that says, okay, I can't click connect all the dots. From a skeptic's point of view, that's where you have to point them to, hey, let's do the historical studies. Because right? if you're not Christian, you're not going to accept that. But that's where this stuff comes in and goes. Yeah. Okay. Pro prove the book historically first, and then the circular reasoning can make sense in the context of the Okay, well, thank you all for listening to us for the last, I don't know, hour and five minutes or so, a little bit too long probably, but uh, I think for the as well. Next week we'll be doing LGBTQ. Everyone take a deep, everyone take a deep breath on that one. Um, and we'll be PG-13. So, <laughs> just for if anyone wanted to bring kids in, I just I wanted to call that call that out. And then we'll be doing CRT two weeks to close in prayer. We should close in prayer. Um, just a quick question. Are you videoing this to come back so you can listen to it again? Absolutely. Oh, okay. It'll be both placed out on the Vimeo site, um, as well as we actually have a blog that we put this stuff out on as well. Um, that, can be, that can be worked out as well. So it'll be out there. Assuming there's not some crazy thing that went wrong <laughs> during the filming of this uh, episode. <laughs> but uh, let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, uh, we just uh, we thank you um, for your work that you did give us this amazing book that can be historically as well as logically made sense of so that we can believe in you even more and be able to show the skeptic out there that this it does make sense. We just thank you for your um, divine intervention in that and showing us those things. You spent a lifetime um, learning these things. And we just pray that we can take the information that we learned today and apply it into our own hearts and our own minds for a better knowledge and understanding to give you um, glory and a better relationship with you and then to be able to turn and take that out to others out there that need to hear these types of, of, of arguments that can open up their hearts to you. We just pray that we have the right heart toward those people um, as, we, as we have started in this, that ultimately it's their heart that we are after, not some piece of information that we just hit some over the head. So just keep that in our in our hearts and our minds as, as we go out and talk about these things. Thank you for this church and everybody in it. In your son's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.